while we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount together in a series we're saying is called to be different. And so Jesus was instructing his disciples in Matthews chapter 5 through 7. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthews chapter 5 to 7. We're spending some time there. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, what it what does it look like? What are, what are his priorities? What does it mean for, for us to be a part of that kingdom? And what would it look like in how we live, how we interact with our Heavenly Father, and how we interact with one another? And that's really what the, the sum of the Sermon on the Mount is really all about. And, of course, that's, that has implications for how we do our daily life. It's going to have implications on how we, yes, do our relationships, but... How we handle our finances it has uh, implications for how we actually handle marriage and our relationships uh, with our neighbors and also our relationships with those who are enemies. And so it, it's, a, it's a comprehensive understanding that if I'm going to follow Jesus in this new way of living, what would it look like? And so we've been looking at a few parts of uh, already chapter 5. We're going to look at another small part. And I have no way how we're, how we're going to finish up this, this whole two, uh, three chapters, actually, in Sermon on the Mount. But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do at least the parts that God's, I think, asking us to do. And so we're, we're, we're trying to understand. And not only, you know, does Jesus teach this, but what we're really understanding, and we're going to see a little bit more today, is that he didn't just teach us to live this way. He actually lived this way. And so the real calling of us as a disciple of Jesus is to follow, in other words. It's not to know. It's not to understand. It's not necessarily even about the behave part, which matters. But it's actually about following. And so he's kind of letting the disciples know what it looks like to follow. And he's describing what it looks like to follow. What does the heart look like of our Heavenly Father? And this is how it's going to be for you if you are to follow. And describing it as the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. Jesus told his disciples and everyone around them that his kingdom was not in this world. It was not of this world. It was outside of this world. But he's actually inviting us even today to live in a kingdom that is, that is in a sense livable today and is still not yet complete. And we do that by following him, by listening to his Holy Spirit in how we walk every day. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount really is all about. It's about focusing on his teaching, living in the kingdom under his, the way he values life and priorities, and how we love God and love other people. So that's what we're doing. Now we're going to go into um, Matthew 5, and we're going to look at verses 17 through about 20, and this is, this is where we kind of left off last week, and we want to finish this off. It's actually amazing. I always think later, of course, after the fact of, you know, we didn't, we didn't get that done. I, we needed to talk about the other, the other part of it being salt and light first, and how this lands today is really important. It lands at the communion table. It lands at the Lord's table. And it really is fitting to talk about this today. And so if you're watching online, uh, a little bit later on the service, we're going to have time for communion. So if you have a, a cup or bread and you want to participate along with us, we'd love you to do that. So I want to read to you, starting at verse 17 of chapter 5 in Matthew. Jesus is saying this, and he's about to give a lot of examples of this after this. So we're not going to go into all of them today, but you need to know what follows this again are examples of what he's saying. 
So he says, Don't, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And of course, he was being accused of not living them, right? Not doing what he was supposed to do as a good Jewish rabbi. And so his, accusa- his accusers were, you're, you're abolishing everything that we stand for. He says, no, that's not why I've done this. It's not why I'm living the way I'm living. I'm living not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's a little bit of foreshadowing there. Everything's going to be accomplished one day, he's saying, coming up. Therefore, anyone who sets aside the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So he's like, I'm not teaching people that these commandments don't matter. They do matter. But whoever then practices them, and this is really what Jesus is trying to help his followers see. It's not about understanding them. It's about practicing the heart of this that matters. So anyone who doesn't do this is least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is going to be a big like, what? (laughs) For the audience of that day. For his disciples. They, They weren't they weren't the teachers of the law. They weren't the Pharisees. They were really, his, his disciples around him were like the rejects of that system. <laughs> they were the ones who didn't make it, you know. They, they went through a lot of Jewish training as kids, like all the teenagers did. And they were basically rejected to become, you know, any future rabbi-type people. And, and that community, you know, they would look up to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees as very, very strict in their belief set and in their behaviors and Jesus is saying, if you're, not, if you're not beyond what they do, you cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, beyond that, their entire life, every daily routine was dedicated in their mind to pleasing God. Jesus is like, you got to surpass them if you even want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that was very much earth shattering for his audience. So I want to talk about this real concept, this one concept today, is this. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. What does that mean? Does it mean he came to explain the law? Well, yeah, I think he did. Does it mean he came to obey the law? Actually, he did. Did he, did he come then to bring it to completion? Yeah, yeah, I think that's also what he did. Meet the requirements? Yes. All of these things. So it means more than one thing. It's, it's a massive statement. And so I want to look at the ways in which we now as followers of Jesus understand when he says, I came to fulfill it. What does that look like? And what are the implications for us today? Because that is the essence of our faith and where we put our trust. That Jesus actually fulfilled the law. If he didn't, then we're still stuck in our sins. And worse, worse is that we're actually not doing anything to deal with our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, if he didn't fulfill the law, not only are you worse because your you know, understanding is corrupt, but it means your behaviors are, are not in alignment with the rest of Scripture either 
which is how God was trying to make the Israelites right with himself. So we, we must understand this. Well, the first way is Jesus fulfilled, he says this of himself, he fulfilled all the promises about the Messiah. So in, in the Old Testament and in the prophets and in the Psalms, there's, there's foreshadowing of a time when the Messiah would come, the Christ. Christ means the Messiah, the chosen one, the Savior of God's people, that he would come. And Jesus in his lifetime fulfilled, fulfilled all of that up. So when Jesus says, I fulfilled all what was written, means he actually made all the promises about him come true. It means that his story and what he is doing is not different than what we read in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. It's actually a continuation of the story. It's the next chapter in what God was doing in the world. And so followers of Jesus Christ, why we still need to understand the Old Testament, we still need to understand the law, we still need to understand the prophets, we still need to read the Psalms, because they speak, Jesus said, they speak about me. And if you're going to understand what it means that Jesus fulfilled those things, then you have to understand what they were, and why they were there, and what is it about. Jesus is a continuation of that story. And he said this to them again. He said this to them after he died and he rose again. And his disciples were very confused about Jesus said he was here to establish this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven. And then he died. And, of course, they're very confused about this. And he says, look, isn't this what it said about me? So in Luke 24, 44, he's talking to disciples after he's risen. And he said, look, I told you. Of course, they couldn't understand it. I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And part of that was to suffer, to die. And Jesus said, if I was to fulfill everything that was written, that was part of it. You should have known. I told you that. But that was extremely hard on the Jewish people to understand because their idea of a kingdom, of course, was a very physical realm. And having a king was a very um, physical thing that would relieve them, that would save them. So all their ideas of kingdom and savior was really about this tangible world. And it was about being freed from the oppressors. And that the establishment of this kingdom would mean that they were finally free of oppression but also being established as in a hierarchy sense that these were God's chosen people. And so this, you remember as we always head into Easter season, we usually talk about the Palm Sunday. And as, as they really believed that this, they saw his miracles and his signs and everything else, that was all part of the prophecies. That this is what the Messiah would do, the Christ would do all these things. And so there was huge crowds who really believed this was the coming Messiah. And they, they, they believed that he was coming into Jerusalem to take over. It was a coup. And he went right to the cross, and they all walked away and said, well, that's not our Messiah. Jesus says, you misunderstood what it said about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is what it had to be. It was interesting. I, I did a little bit of research, and uh, it's over 300, 300 distinct 
prophecies about what the Messiah, what Christ would look like, go through, say and do, and all of that stuff in, in the law, in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled them all. Some people say it's over 300, but it's around 300. And I was looking at, you know, what are the chances of one person ever being able to fulfill all 300 of those prophecies about him? And I can't even tell you the one to whatever number. I actually can't give it to you because I don't even know how to say it. The odds are so big. It's basically 1 to 10 to the 17th power. So if anyone, you got some really smart people here, go ahead. I googled it. It gave me a big long word of what that means. It's a lot. The chances that one person could fulfill all that was said in the law and the prophets in the Old Testament about Jesus, and yet he did. It's amazing that he was able to do that. Another way that it means that Jesus fulfilled the law, I think, is one of the ones that substantially sticks out to me that I hang on to, is that Jesus fulfilled it by doing it, but not just doing it, doing not the letter of the law, but actually fulfilling the very reason that the law was given, which was the change of heart to become like our Heavenly Father. So he fulfilled the law, not by keeping the letter of the law, which he did, but he actually kept the heart or the reason behind the law too. And that is not easy. And so this is what Jesus is talking about on all these other things that you see coming up. He said, you know, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said. That's the letter of the law. But I'm telling you, this is what it means to be in the kingdom of God. You've heard it said you can't murder, but you need to know that the heart of the law is not to hate one another. And the root of sin is not in your behavior. The root of sin is in your heart. And so Jesus not only lived out the law perfectly, but he lived out what it meant to live in perfect relationship with the Heavenly Father and in perfect relationship with others, including enemies. And so he did what no one else could do. No one else could even keep the letter of the law, let alone the heart or the spirit of the law. And so Jesus, literally, his examples that we will look at, we will look at a few of them in the way they happen later on about adultery and murder and pro keeping your promises and divorce and loving your enemies. What he does there is he takes very specific ones and says, yes, the letter of the law, you've heard it said, is this, but the spirit of the law is so much bigger than that. And he does that on purpose by actually filling out or fulfilling, filling up the law with all of its intent. Now, I don't know if you've um, had kids or not, but you've been one, so I know that. And so, what Jesus is trying to say is like, there's an issue with each of us that we encounter in even a small child. And the letter of the law never brings about good character 
the letter of the law actually, what Paul says, actually brings about disobedience. And so you can picture this, this probably wasn't a true story about me, but I'll just pretend a child comes home from school and is told not to watch TV until you're done your homework. And child thinks about that letter of the law, do not watch TV until you're done your homework. And a little bit later on, the mom comes around and this kid's sitting on the ground looking at his iPad. And the mom says, well, I, I said you can't watch TV until you're done your homework. And they said, well, I wasn't watching TV. The TV, I wasn't watching. I was watching the iPad. My show was on the iPad. I was watching YouTube. The mom says, wait a second. That you're missing the point. The point is to do your homework. And so here's the thing. I don't want you watching any cartoons on any electronic devices. She comes back half an hour later and the child is not doing homework. The child is watching sports. Mom says, what are you doing? And Well, you said I couldn't watch cartoons. I'm not watching cartoons. I'm, I'm watching sports. And this was the problem with the law. The problem with the law was that every time a, a commandment or law was given, the human heart would seek out a way to still selfishly feed their own desires. And so the law, of course, ballooned and ballooned and ballooned to weather over 600 laws around the Ten Commandments to try to, like, cover up all these different ways and be like a, a mom saying, look, you need to not do this, not do this, not do that, not do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and, and try to crowd that kid into doing the very heart thing, which is your homework, please. And see, law can't actually get the heart to desire something. The law only forces by corralling the heart to try to focus it to do the right thing. And, and so the law was given so that people would know how to love God and how to love each other. But no matter how many laws they came up with, the heart always found a way to love self. Not love others more than self. Not love God more than self. And so Jesus comes along and he starts to help them understand the condition of the heart in the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> he didn't come to give more law. Remember I mentioned that last time. That's one of the reasons why the Muslims reject Jesus as God's son. Because they believed if he was God's son, he would have brought the law. More law. Jesus didn't come to bring law. He came to set us free and fulfill law that we would be free to truly love God and love one another. Even when Jesus was asked that, of course, you remember one of the interactions probably that he was asked by one of the teachers of the law. And they said, you know, Jesus, well, well what is it then? What is it then that's the most important of the law? And so Jesus, of course, because his whole life was about this, he said, well, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and to love your neighbor of yourself. What was the initial, what was the reaction of those that loved the law? What was the thing that he responded and he wanted to know? Well, then who is my neighbor? I need to define this because I got to find a way around it. 
And so whenever even the heart of the law was displayed, for those that are fixated on law, as in achieving something to get close to God, there's, there's always, we need clarity, I need clarity, I need clarity, I need clarity. You need to be more specific. And so this was the situation, of course, where Jesus arrives is a fixation on the law. So Jesus came to, yes, keep the law, but expose the heart of God. And Jesus ends this passage when he said this again, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, look, this is not about getting in the kingdom of heaven will not happen based on how well you do the law. Can't get in based on the law. You can't get to see God based on the law. Your heart has to change. You'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, if you read on in chapters 6 and 7, Jesus uses a word a lot. Hypocrisy, hypocrites. Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. Four times in a short period of time saying, look, you're so fixated on the behavior, but on the inside, on the inside, you're corrupt. And to be honest, if you were a listener then of the Sermon on the Mount, I think for us we kind of go, hey, okay, this is helpful. Like I, now I know a new standard. Like I know a standard now of how to follow Jesus. And there is, there is a standard there. But if you were there as a Jewish listener, you would be saying, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm doomed. I mean, it's not just about not committing adultery. It's never having a lustful thought. How do you, how do you not do that? You mean it's not just about not murdering. It's actually about not hating somebody? Like, not hating my enemies? A person trying to hurt? Like, impossible. And part of what Jesus is doing is laying out to enter in the kingdom of God on your own, in any which way you try it, is absolutely impossible. That is the heart of the message he is getting across. And sometimes for us, because we're so far removed from that culture, we look at the Sermon on the Mount, and I've, I've read people do this, and they're trying to create a new law then. So it's like, okay, so I look at the Sermon on the Mount, and I try to come up with a bunch of ways in which I can get into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is purposely explaining this for them to go, well, we're all done then. So there's no one, no one going to get in the kingdom of heaven. Yes, he concludes even that chapter, which we didn't read. Chapter 5, verse 48, it says this, be perfect. <laughs> what? So be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm sure there was quite a crowd of murmuring going on in that time. And we're going to put a pin in that. And we're going to come back to a verse that explains, I think, what Jesus was trying to establish. Another way that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets was he came to establish a new covenant relationship with God as was promised in Scripture. So part of fulfilling was that there was in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms, there was an anticipation of a new covenant coming. And so part of him fulfilling the old was to establish anew. That was part of fulfillment. That was part of what was promised. In Jeremiah, the prophet said, there is a day coming. 
I'll make a new covenant with people of Israel and Judah, and I'll remember, I won't, sorry, I'll forgive their wickedness, and I'll never remember their sins. There's one coming, and I'm going to make a new covenant. So Jesus, by establishing a new covenant, is actually fulfilling the old. The old had to pass away so that a new could come. And Jesus did this. And so as we partake on the Lord's Supper today, we always remember the words of Jesus when he met with the disciples. When he met with the disciples and he broke bread and he took the cup, after, cup, he, after supper he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my new covenant. I'm making a new covenant based on my sacrifice, based on my blood, which is being poured out for you. And so Jesus fulfilling the old meant he had to establish a new one. And so we see him doing this. And we spend a, a quite a bit of time back, if you're, if you're newer here at Heritage, we walk through uh, the book of Romans, chapter 1 um, through 8. And in there, Paul's trying to explain all the old covenant, the new covenant, how it all works. Fairly significant to understand. And so I'll read a little part of what we already studied this year on that. So in Romans chapter 3, he says this. For no one can ever be made right in God's sight by doing what the law commands. This is Paul saying, here's what Jesus did when he fulfilled. For the more we knew God's law, the more we know it, the clearer it becomes we're not obeying it. But now God has shown us a different way of being made right in his sight. Not by obeying the law, but by the way promised in the scriptures. So he's talking about how Jesus fulfilled it. He said it was promised and there's a new way and it's been fulfilled. So this is his declaration of what it is. New covenant. We are made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus Christ to take away our sins. That's Romans 3, 20. So continue on a little bit. Later on in 3, it says, So we can all be saved then in the same way. No matter who we are or what we have done, can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? So this is important because we're not trying to establish a new way, a new way to be accepted by God. That's not what we're going to do. And this is a struggle for, for Christians. It really is. It's a struggle. We want, we want there to be a way to earn acceptance by God. And he says, but can we do that? No, we can't do that. Can we do anything? Is anything can be done to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is not based on our good deeds. It is based on our faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Paul talks about it in multiple circles and multiple ways because this was a huge, of course, challenge. When you're moving from one covenant system of how you have a relationship with God into a new one, it's hard. Because the, the, the whole idea was, so, so now what? Like, what do we do? How do we interact with this? How do we live in this? Well, what we don't want to do, and I want to give this to you, and I want us to I want you to digest it. It's in your notes, and I want you to somehow, if you have a pen, to like write over it, not correct, because I didn't bother putting that in your notes. This isn't right. So when you pick up those notes, like, 
<laughs> six months, two years, five years from now, and you're like, that's kind of heresy. Um, so in your notes, it says these things. Jesus plus good behavior equals close to God. That's not correct, okay? But what I'm saying there is, look, what happens is this. When we don't understand that Jesus fulfilled the law, what we do is we add Jesus to law. And so I call it the Jesus plus problem. And so we're trying to live in both covenants at the same time. And I want you to, I don't, probably can't explain this well, I'll just say it quickly. What Jesus said is true, and I agree with him. There's nothing wrong with the law. That's not the problem. The problem was there was no way for us to be successful to get close to God. We weren't able to do it. We're never able to do it. Not the letter and definitely not the heart of it. So it's not wrong. It's not incorrect. It's just impossible. So Jesus plus good behavior does not get us close to God. But when I talk to people and you talk to the world around you and they were to think about Christians... I want you to know something. They think this is what we believe. And they think it's what we believe because unfortunately we struggle with this. And so if I say to people, how are you doing in your relationship with God? What we do is we go and we measure our good behavior. We think about it. Have I been good? Have I read my Bible? Have I gone to church? Have I prayed? Have I done good things? And the worst is that if we are doing those things, we feel like somehow we're getting close to God. And in that, Scripture teaches us that puffs us up. We become arrogant. We look down on other people. So we're also believing that Jesus plus bad behavior is distant from God. So we look at our life and we go, I haven't been doing very well. What do you mean by that? Well, me and God, and sometimes we'll describe our relationship as distant. Someone say, why do you feel distant from God? You would go to how you've been doing, how you've been performing. And I, I think this is natural, <laughs> I, but it's not scriptural. And so it's so important to understand that we're in a new covenant and what Jesus did when he said, I've come to fulfill, not abolish, but to fulfill this, is that you won't just add law to Jesus. It doesn't work. And so worst case is we say, well, Jesus plus good behavior minus bad behavior equals godliness. So if I do good things, I stop doing the bad things, then I feel like I'm mature. I'm mature. I'm close to God. But that, again, is not the gospel. I'm not saying we shouldn't do good behavior. <laughs> Jesus says we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't reject sin and all the bad. We should. Jesus talks about that. But understanding that is nothing to do with being perfect is really important. I, I struggle with it. I'm being honest. Like, this is hard. I just want us to admit it's hard. Paul says we can add or take away nothing from what Jesus did on the cross. Which means fundamentally our posture in our relationship with Jesus Christ is absolute humility and humbling. 
That's the posture of being a believer. Is it's just receiving unmerited mercy and grace fully. Never standing on our own merit. So Jesus also fulfilled, we'll come back to that because we're going to participate in communion. This is really important. Jesus fulfilled the requirements for justice that were required. The law was given, but it also stated that there, there needs to be justice for sin. And so all sin from the beginning, and this is even beyond the law, okay? So you have to understand way back in Genesis, right? He said to Adam and Eve, if, right, if you disobey, you'll die. The death penalty is, is for sin, and that's why the enemy said, well, surely you won't die. Why would God create you and, 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 and then kill you? That's not going to happen. But death, they did die. They started dying from that day forward. Death began to reign in the world. We start seeing the ramifications of death immediately. In fact, they felt guilt and shame. And God had to kill an animal to cover their shame with the sacrifice of the first animal. God performed it. Death, shedding of blood, had to occur for sin. And God steps in and does the very first thing that we see all the law talks about was, this animal, this innocent animal, must die in your place to cover your shame. Not to take it away, but to cover it. To cover your guilt. But death and murder reigned from Cain and Abel and on and on and on from that day forward. And so the law was given and all the Leviticus and all the rules about sacrifice was all about covering over shame, covering over guilt, but never fully being able to take it away. It's just covering it over so that God could have a relationship with those people. But for entering into the kingdom of heaven, it required that we become perfect like our heavenly father. Not covered over, not appeased, not that the, we would just have a, a something to someone else die in our place so that we could survive God's wrath. But if we were going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we were going to be intimate with God, we needed to be perfected, purified, cleaned completely. Not ignored in our sin, but our sin finally had to be dealt with. The cost of sin was always the shedding of blood. God required animal sacrifice as a temporary covering for sin. A foreshadowing that one sacrifice would eventually need to come to deal with sin once and for all. So I want to read to you a little bit in Hebrews 10. I'm not going to put it on the screen for you. But it's important that we understand this so when we go to communion, we truly understand that the foundation of our faith. So Hebrews chapter 11, I mean, sorry, chapter 10. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, you can. Or you just listen and reflect. Close your eyes if you want to. I'm not going to read all of it. But Hebrews 10, 1 through 18 is an amazing description of all of this, what the law was, what the sacrificials was, and what Jesus did. So I want to read some of it to you. First, it's starting at 10 verse 1. The old system under the law of Moses was a shadow 
a dim preview of good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who would come to worship. They were never able to perfect the people who would come to worship. They covered them. But Jesus came and said, he did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or offerings for other sin, nor was our Father pleased with them, though they required by the law. Then he said, look, it's Jesus, I have come to do your will. He, Jesus, our Messiah, cancels the first covenant in order to put the second one in effect. He fulfilled it, completed it by sacrifice. So he could institute a new covenant in its place. For God's will was for us to be made holy, perfect, by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, while the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. And verse 14 says this. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. He made them perfect who he was making holy. So when Jesus says, be perfect, he knows that this is not something we can do, but it's a requirement to be in the kingdom of heaven. It's a requirement to be in a relationship in the kingdom of heaven with God. And so by his sacrifice, the book of Hebrews is teaching us, this is what he did. He made us perfect in this new covenant. And so we're going to go to communion time. And, and why we do this, I hope this is why you understand, because he asks us to do this on a regular basis. See, I, the, the New Testament church, you know, they, they gathered... Um, you know, they gathered out of survival, a lot of it. I mean, they gathered home to home, and, and we'd see that all around the world right now where there's persecution. I mean, the believers, they gather in home to home to home. And he said, when you gather together and you break bread, which was a common element of the meal, for sure, and you have the cup or the wine, use the opportunity when you gather to stop and remember. Remember there's a new covenant, Remind yourself who you are. Remind yourself what I've done. Do this to remember, he said. And there's coming a day when we will have this Lord's Supper with him to complete the whole process of those who are being made holy, called perfect. It's amazing. And so we come here, not because this, you know, the actions of attending make us anything. We come to acknowledge that we are nothing. 
We contribute nothing. We take away nothing from the work of Jesus Christ. It's only by faith. And so we do this to remember. Remind us. We're in a new covenant. It doesn't mean we don't say no to the old self. It doesn't mean we say no to sin. It doesn't mean we, we try to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We do all that because we now live in a covenant of the kingdom. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. And we're going to distribute the element of bread first. And everyone just take it and hold on to it. And the bread represents that Jesus' body endured punishment for us, that he was broken in our place. And so we're going to take the bread and everyone served and we'll partake it together. And then we will serve the cup. And once everyone gets the cup, we'll partake together. A reminder that we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ in a new covenant that in his eyes we are perfect. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to remember as you called us to do that together as a community. I'll be honest, you know me. <laughs> this is hard. It's hard to rest in a covenant which fully rests on you and not me. It's hard to understand that you would do all of that for me when I can't earn it at all. And so today as we take part of communion, we pray that you would just teach us about your love for us. That your desire for us, that we would rest and by faith trust you. And that would so overwhelm us today that we would recognize that if that is really true of how great your love was for us, that you would do that, that you would put us in that position, how could we possibly keep that good news to ourselves? That anyone who would call on your name or put their trust in you would experience a new covenant like this. So we thank you today for your broken body and your shed blood. Amen.